as a 2000 graduate, shelter medicine wasn't really a thing. I mean, now it's really blossomed and grown. I will share that as a child, my mom and I would literally go to the local animal shelter just to like walk through and window shop. I don't know a lot of people do this. We didn't go home with a pet. We had our own pets, but we would walk through and I wanted to go see the animals. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPaws Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. FurPaws Consulting has deep expertise in helping veterinary practices reach their full potential for all types of practices, whether specialty, emergency, or general practice, by working alongside the practice owner and manager. Are you a practice owner or practice manager with a challenge and not enough bandwidth to tackle it? Reach out to me, Andrea Crabtree, owner of FurPaws Consulting, with the question that keeps you up at night. I'm able to provide expertise and insight to navigate those tricky obstacles. Find my info in the show notes. Email me at andrea at furpaws.us or check out my website at www.furpawsconsulting.com. Hello, Positive Leaders. Oh my God, it's good to be back with you all again. Andrea and I are so excited to welcome another great, great guest to the show. Dr. Jennifer Hawkins is the Executive Director of the Southern California Veterinary Medical Association and holds her DVM credential. Welcome, Dr. Hawkins, to the show. Welcome, Dr. Hawkins. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So we don't read stuffy bios at the Positive Leadership Podcast, but we always want to know about you and so do our listeners. So without having to read your bio, can you tell us and the listeners about yourself, your background, and what you're doing these days? Sure. I am UC Davis, class of 2000 graduate from the veterinary school there. And after graduating, I moved down to Southern California and haven't left. I started out in a small animal private practice before moving into relief work. I've worn a lot of different hats, including working at animal shelters, teaching uh, Cal Poly Pomona's RVT program. I've written articles for VPI. It's now nationwide. And then about halfway through my career, I shifted entirely into animal shelter medicine and became chief veterinarian at OC Animal Care and was also their director, before, which that was my most recent past role before taking on my current one here at SCVMA, which was Late 2021, I had the honor of being selected as the successor to the well-known Dr. Peter Weinstein, who ran this organization for 14 years prior. So I'm thrilled to be here. I will share that all throughout my veterinary career, I was also very active in organized veterinary medicine and association work. 
holding all the roles at the local chapter level and at the SCBMA and almost all the roles at the CBMA level as well. So it's been a really nice transition and I've got great people here supporting me. I think that's in a nutshell, my not too stuffy bio. <laughs> that's amazing. There's so much there. And uh, it's also so great. We have so many guests that like yourself that have done so many things in their veterinary career, whether it's speak to a lot of managers or doctors or, you know, vet techs or whatever. And it's the same with you. And, you know, you've been able to have a pretty, pretty robust and sounds like pretty rewarding career. And you're just entering the phase of being a, you know, executive director of a, an organization, which is a whole career path in itself. So that's awesome. It really is. And I will say, and I know you guys talk about this stuff all the time, but that's one thing I love about this profession is there are so many different things you can do in it. We always think about some really traditional roles that we're going to be as a veterinarian, but I'll never forget a high school teacher of mine when he heard that was my interest as he said, oh, you can do so many things with that. You could go into research or you could teach or you could, and he listed off things that I blew me away and I never forgot that. That's awesome. Amazing. What do you have on deck, favorite book or podcast or like a CE course that you can speak to that has really left a lasting effect on you? We love to share these with our listeners as well. You know, I'm listening to some podcasts usually when I go for a walk or something. And there's a couple of them that I like the happiness lab. I like the hidden brain. I was trying to think about like, I wish I could say that, you know, in all my spare time, I read all these great leadership, these inspirational books or something, but I, I don't, I really don't. I read some books for pleasure. I do come around and read books on emotional intelligence and stuff from time to time when I want to kind of self-reflect and improve myself. But the ones I will say that really stick with me are ones that have to do with the thought processes we have and sort of the philosophies we have about medicine, just about anything written by Atul Gawanda. He's written the book Better. He wrote Checklist Manifesto and Being Mortal. He's a medical doctor, if you're not aware of him, who really kind of tries to look at the big picture of things. So like the book Being Mortal really impacted me because, well, I've gone through watching family go through the end of life process, but he talks a lot about how human medical doctors, I always think it's funny, we call them human medical doctors, but human medical doctors, that they're trained to fix everything and they're not trained to have the difficult conversations about what end of life looks like, what people want to get out of their experience, or what are the critical factors for them. Books like those really stick with me. And I feel like in this profession, we have this gift that we're able to to have those conversations with people and to think about our own lives in that way as well. I'll list one more book, which is also kind of a geeky medical doctor book. It's called Another Day in the Frontal Lobe. And that's written by a human neurologist. And she talks all about her experiences as a, a, a neurologic surgeon. And I really like the way she talks about, it sort of gets into that incremental care subject that we talk about in veterinary medicine. But she talks about how in the human medical field, they have spent so much time, everything's evolved to a point where every test gets in the book gets run. But the art of diagnosing, localizing a lesion, for example, based on physical exam only has kind of suffered a bit. And I feel like we could potentially follow that track too. So I don't know, I just kind of like reading books like that, that make me think a little bit about how we operate in our profession. Yeah, that's interesting. I would like to ask you about your work history. And you have worked in shelter medicine for years, and now Mm -hmm. recently moved into the executive director position at the SCVMA. 
why these areas of veterinary medicine? Why not the traditional small animal veterinarian where you're seeing dogs and cats? So you knew from a young age that that's what you wanted to do was to be in veterinary medicine, but what the heck? Why that left turn? Right. That's a great question, especially because as a 2000 graduate, shelter medicine wasn't really a thing. I mean, now it's really blossomed and grown. I will share that as a child, my mom and I would literally go to the local animal shelter just to like walk through and window shop. I don't know a lot of people do this. We didn't go home with a pet. We had our own pets, but we would walk through and I like, we just wanted to go see the animals. Yeah. And when I was doing, I did start out in small animal private practice. I would say I spent about half of my career in small animal private practice and the other half in animal sheltering. But when I was working in private practice and doing relief, I was asked if I could relief at an animal shelter. And I thought, yeah, I guess I could. And I was blown away. The volume and the variety of animals that come through, at least in our area where we have a lot of suburban wildlife. I didn't know how to examine an opossum. Yeah, right. (laughs) So you get to see all these really cool animals. One thing I really like about animal sheltering is the most of the decisions are made in the clinic in the back and there isn't that asking permission that trying to engender the participation of the pet owner. Yeah. You just see that animal that needs what it needs and you can Mm -hmm. catheter in it, get the x-rays, get the pain medication and follow through with your plan. Now, of course, there are limitations. There's budget issues and stuff in an animal shelter and you may not have the ultrasound machine or some of the diagnostic tools that are so common in private practice. But I really liked the ability to to make those decisions with the animal shelters within the resource limitations without having to, you know, spend 30 minutes talking to Mrs. Jones and then we're moving forward and now Mr. Jones is on the phone and we're doing it again. Well, I think those those conversations are really important. They sometimes tend to take away from your focus on the animal and getting the care it needs. And that's what I like about animal sheltering. You can just boom, 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 take care of the animal and you get a lot lot of problems that you deal with. So very interesting. Yeah, really that I I didn't realize I wanted to do until the opportunity arose. Huh. You know, I know that you are pretty passionate about like animal cruelty stuff and kind of community outreach stuff. Did that interest come from being a shelter vet? And like, is there any history behind that? Or can you tell us a little bit more about kind of the work you've done in those areas? Yeah, absolutely. And, And you're right. It absolutely came from animal shelter work. I didn't consider it much until I was working. And again, when I started working in an animal shelter, I was, I really was just examining each individual animal and treating, applying my small animal practice knowledge in a shelter environment. And then on my horizons, my, my, my view kind of got broadened while I was there to look at the entire population and to look at the people that are bringing in the pets and the areas they come from and the socioeconomics. And you kind of got a more of a big picture idea of how things work uh, and how the shelter fits in the community. But with regards to animal cruelty, we were connected to an animal control and animal control would bring in cases of alleged cruelty all the time. And the expectation of me as the veterinarian on duty was to be the expert for that case. You know, I could examine the animal and write some notes, but I had not been expected in private practice, I didn't, thankfully, knock on, I didn't have a lot of cases that were cruelty that I was aware of. So these were cases that came with a story, um, a dog, a dog tethered in the backyard with no shade and it's emaciated and people have been gone for however long, whatever the story was, that I would have to put everything together into a case. And I developed that skill working in the shelter. The DA's office had sort of a template they wanted us to use. 
just took CE courses and read books on animal cruelty and became, I'm not good at tooting my own horn, but I really did enjoy, I got good at writing cruelty cases and evaluating and finding the keys that would help strengthen that case and tell the story. I don't know how to describe it. It's just really kind of thrilling to do this investigative work and to be able to say, the reason why that dog had uh, thrombocytosis and anemia uh, was because it was completely burdened with so many fleas that it was exsanguinated, almost exsanguinated dry. We had to give it a blood transfusion. And thrombocytosis is because the body thinks it's bleeding to death and it's ramping up, it's pushing out of thrombocytes from the bone marrow. And I could draw a whole picture in lay terms for, a, for whoever's going to be pursuing the case and be able to say it's all, this is cruelty and neglect. And the simplest all the person ever had to do was apply those drops between the shoulder blades. It's about the simplest treatment ever. And I just love being able to write the story and put it together and defend the animal that, you know, had no part in all of this. Yeah. And be the voice of the animal that doesn't have the voice. Yeah. Right. Very interesting. So Hawk, our podcast is about leadership. And the reason why I wanted to have you on is because I feel like you have a different lens right? As chief veterinarian, director of animal control, executive director of the VMA, you have some experience with leadership, again, through a different lens. So can you share what leadership means to you through that lens, through your experience? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I think there's just so many different styles of leadership. And I think like everything we do, whether it's I joke about when you're a new parent and you read all the books on parenting and some of the things you kind of tease out the stuff that you want to apply to your own life and the other stuff you may not like so much. And I I feel like with leadership, I just have observed great leaders and tried to adopt the things that really impressed me. But for my history, I feel like a leader to me, my role, I always feel like my role is to facilitate getting the resources needed to help either a veterinary team or an organization or a business come together and move forward to reach its goal or um, helping facilitate that if somebody comes to me and says, you know, we really want to be able to do this better, but in order to do that, we need this, either whether it's a physical item or certain kind of support Mm -hmm. or being backed up by their practice manager or whatever it is, this is what we need. And then as a leader, trying to help facilitate that somehow. So in a shelter, in a municipal shelter, it's usually a lengthy process having to do with Paperwork galore. I'm lucky to be at the SCBMA where it's less political. It's where all of us are on the same team. We're all typically trying to reach the same goal. Never thought you'd say less political, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Compared to a municipal animal shelter, just about anything is less political. Wow, that makes sense. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because I want to punch in a little bit on organized medicine or organized veterinary medicine. It depends on the organization. Obviously, most of them, well, all of them have a veterinary membership. Some of them have a vet tech type of membership. And then many of them now have practice manager memberships, either separate from vet tech or as a conglomerate of support staff. Like, it just depends on probably how their bylaws are set up or whatever. If you were speaking to a group of, frankly, not only practice managers, but there's a lot of practice owners, too, that listen to our podcast, why should people especially people in leadership, get involved in organized medicine. Whether if you're a practice manager, what would you say to somebody who says, oh, that's for the doctors? And if they're a practice owner, you know, thinking like if they're more angled towards business and owning a group of practices, why would you say, no, you've got to stay involved in your VMA? Like, how would you kind of work with those two, those two lenses on that? 
That's a really great question. First of all, I would say we need your voice. The SCBMA is about half made up of veterinarians. We have about 2,700 members and about half of them are veterinarians. The other half are all of those team members you just described. So if we didn't have the voices of that, the non-veterinarians, then this association would look completely different. I don't know how we would provide resources to pre for practice managers or RBTs or veterinary assistants if we didn't have an opportunity to hear from them on what those needs are. I'm not a practice manager and I'm not an RBT. I've taught RBTs. I'm a big cheerleader for RBTs, but I need to know what's needed. And in order for me as a leader of this organization and the board of trustees of this organization to be able to help move us all towards our, our goals, we need to have those voices. I kind of joke about how I'm, someday I'm going to write a book about a book called The Accidental Leader because I just, people just say, hey, you no, should that's do this good. <laughs> I'm like, okay, okay, I guess so. I don't really, I, it's, not like I, yeah, I, it's not like I left that school and said, I'm going to, someday I'm going to run the Southern California VMA. I never did that. Um, it was just, hey, you want to run this local chapter, you should be treasurer. And it just sort of moved on from there. But I will say what I find I get out of it, whether it's at an SCBMA board meeting when I was on the board or when I'm at the California Veterinary Medical Association meetings as, a, as one of the governors. My husband is the one who notices it first. When I come home, he says I seem really jazzed and I always seem really kind of like excited. And oh, cool. My cup is full. And I have to admit that when you're in a room of people that are all your colleagues, you're all doing the same thing in this profession, but maybe in a different way. There's maybe an equine practitioner, sure. there's an RBT, there's a practice manager, but we all get in there and we start sharing conversations about a common topic. Maybe it's telemedicine, maybe it's access to care, any of the issues that we're hearing so much wellness, but you start hearing different perspectives. And I find that my perspective is heard and people seem to appreciate it. And I leave feeling valued. In addition to participating and being heard and making sure that say that RVT or practice manager stays involved in their VMA, I will share my own experiences. I leave feeling good. I leave feeling valued. I leave feeling heard in a way that I don't get when I talk to necessarily a pet owner or an organizational leader of an animal shelter or something like that. I feel like when I have contributed in at a VMA level that my contributions are heard and potentially implemented or considered. So it's just something that's really rewarding to me. Very nice. And now that you say that, I, I'm thinking about the times, reflecting while you say that about times I've come from that type of event, right? The SCVMA installation dinner or some type of all-day thing that the SCVMA has put on, or even a conference like the VHMA, where there's a very it's small conference where close colleagues are together and we're talking about that kind of passion. I do see that that energizes me and it gets me even more excited about my profession and want to come home and dig in and what kind of change can I make? And yeah, so I can appreciate that hindsight looking back of, yeah, so good for your husband, right? <laughs> Yeah, he's, that's why he's supportive. Yeah, you should go to that meeting. Yeah, no problem. I'll mark that weekend on the calendar. He's, I'm lucky he's so supportive. Well, part of it is probably because you do drag him with you to those boring things, right? Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I've taken my husband a few times and he's like, I'm out. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about common mistakes that veterinary practices make, either from the lens of being executive director. So I'm sure you hear a lot of things that happen in veterinary practices from the lens of a, being a veterinarian yourself, working in small animals, shelter, medicine. 
what things would you say, I guess not specifically in leadership, anything that you would say, just don't do this anymore. Like we're, we're hurting our profession. We're hurting our, each other. We're, I don't want to say hurting patients. That's not what I mean there, but just hurt compromising patient care, maybe something, mm-hmm. client care, employee care, whatever that you would say, just don't do this anymore. Just stop, avoid this, run like hell. And then how can practice managers support those veterinarians or support those associates in that process, right? How can we support them to say, hey, we're not going to do this anymore? That's definitely a the million dollar question. I'm going to try to break it down a little bit. <laughs> we're going to we're we're just buzz through it really fast, really easy. I know. <laughs> and that's it. I mean, I probably know one particular thing and every practice is different for sure. For me as a veterinarian, what I have had to learn, I mean, we've probably all noticed it throughout our, I noticed it first in, in veterinary school specifically. We are a profession of people that we've been used to getting things right. We're very perfectionists. We know a lot about animals. We listen to animals for our whole lives. But you put us all in the same room together. Now, the outside of the CE event and the association work where we're all kind of working towards this goal, but you put us in a different environment like in a veterinary hospital and we get competitive and we just assume we know everything or we, that's, I would what word am I looking for? Pitfall that we can fall into sometimes where, you know, well, I'm the vet and I know everything. So I know that this owner didn't do this, or I know that the animal is fine. And I honestly think the thing I would stop doing is stop assuming we always have all the answers and take a moment to listen, take a moment to learn a lesson in humility and recognize that maybe that staff member knows a little bit more about the patient or the pet owner or the condition or some of the history and listen to them, hear what they're telling you, because there may be a little morsel there that's going to really help this case. So I feel like assuming we know all the answers when we walk in is probably one of the biggest mistakes I see. Not everybody does it, but it's something that I see. We're destined to fail if we just stubbornly assume we're always right. So I would say stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate that because, you know, kind of David and I, are, our little thing is like, you know what assuming is, right? It's making an ass out of mm-hmm. you and me. And so making mm-hmm. the assumption that we know the answer or that the client can't afford that treatment or that your technician doesn't know what she's talking about or mm-hmm. that that receptionist, he didn't talk to the client correctly or whatever the case may be. Dr. Huggins, a little bit earlier in the podcast, you mentioned the term incremental veterinary care. I'm not actually sure that I'm familiar with that. Would you kind of go into that a little bit more? And you know, does it have to do with kind of access to care? And then what does this mean? And what does this mean for leaders and practice managers, practice owners? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. There are formal definitions of incremental care. I could probably pull one up and try to sound really great. But honestly, incremental care to me personally means taking a stepwise approach to treating an animal and meeting the client where they are within their resources, but also, and not operating below the standard of care. I would never suggest that. But some of my examples are things like the, the cat bite abscess that, that we know, you know, what are we going to do? We're going to anesthetize that cat, place a drain, start out antibiotics, and probably remove the drain a couple days later, and it'll usually heal well from there. But, you know, the abscess is a little bit open, and it's weeping a little bit, and this client's already told you they're resource constrained. So maybe the incremental care approach to me would be engendering their participation in the care of their animal. You want to make sure they realize that you're going to need their help but they need a hot compress that two or three times a day while delivering the antibiotics and the importance of that wound staying open because cats like to heal really fast. So then you have another point to it with that whatever interval you think is most appropriate, you know, 
regardless of how it looks, I want you have to come back in in three days. And if it's not looking better by then, you know, the next that we will have to move forward with the anesthesia and the surgical drain placement. But giving kind of moving forward, you're making sure the pet is being cared for. You're, you're making sure it's not in pain. You're treating the infection, but not necessarily throwing the entire the book at every single case. There are certainly cases that you're going to need to do that with, but just kind of taking a stepwise approach. Even I graduated veterinary school. The only way you treated parvoviruses, they had to be hospitalized. They had to have an IV catheter. They had to, you know, maybe they got a plasma transfusion. They could get a whole bunch of stuff. And I was humbled to learn that veterinarians have sent pets home with subtube fluids and oral care and other directives with close monitoring. And those dogs have done perfectly fine. So just kind of being creative with making sure you're treating the patient and not exceeding the means of that pet owner and still helping support the the human-animal bond. So yes, it is access to veterinary care. It's trying to find creative ways to break down the barriers, the financial barriers to veterinary care. I love how you just talked about having to work within the means of the client and having that conversation with the client and worrying about what's best for the pet yet still staying within the means of the client. But yet also talking about how in shelter medicine that like the squirrel doesn't have Mr. Smith that you're talking to about that, Mm -hmm. right? Like the squirrel is like, help me. (laughs) So I love that you're able to balance both of those as a veterinarian and really value that client bonding relationship is important. But it's also nice to not have that when you're dealing with something that so I appreciate that coming from you. So I asked you a few minutes ago about things we need to stop doing. You talked about in the beginning that your leadership style is a little bit of hodgepodge of things that you have just come to appreciate in way you felt were good for you or you respected or liked or or something that you valued in a leader. So what are really uh, one or two really good leadership habits that you would share with us to say, if we do these, you either found them successful or you feel that might be um, something that will benefit a practice manager? That's good. And I'm definitely going to call myself a hodgepodge leadership style in my, my imaginary book that I It was I totally a compliment, it. by the way. No, I, I, don't, I, don't, I love it. I, I did not. I took it as a compliment. I took it as, I love it. My, hodgepodge my, the hedgehog. There you go. Yeah, no, that's, I have a hedgehog on my shirt. Hodgepodge, yes. My big keys would be to listen. Listen, listen, listen. Again, you know, we're all a bunch of know-it-alls I already mentioned before. And I, I mean, I, I, you know, we're always right. And I'm particular and I'm always right. Just tell my, my husband knows this. I'm always right. But no, listen, and you might learn from that person. One of the biggest things to do, it works. An exam room is the best experience I can say. I think most of us can relate to, but it works in an office environment, in a team environment. But take a moment to connect. Connect with that pet owner, again, is the, my, my example, I, I would get people coming into the veterinary hospital, they kind of have their arms folded, their body posture stiff, they're frustrated, they're already decided, they're already have like, kind of feeling defensive, because they know you're going to tell them something they don't want to hear. And I would ask them, you know, oh, you're new here, where, you know, are you new to the area? Oh, come to find out they're from Northern California, hey, I'm from Northern California. And their body would relax a little bit. And I talk a little bit about our areas we're from, or, oh, you have school age children, my daughters, and you know, what grade or what school, and you find, I don't know what the connection is, but you're always going to find, there's always something. It's pretty rare to not find something that you connect with a person on, and I have found that once you find that connection, they're much more open 
to listening to you because you have something in common, you have some common ground. So whether it's engendering the participation of a subordinate employee in a plan or some change that may be difficult or uh, new or seem a little uncomfortable, or whether it's getting the pet owner to agree to the care that you know is right for that pet, it really helps to start with a connection. And the other thing I would add to the list of a, of a leadership practice that I think helps people a lot is allowing yourself to be vulnerable. I've seen leadership leaders that you know they feel like they have to put on a certain air or maybe they're new to it. And so they're kind of showing themselves as a leader or trying to act the part or fake it till you make it a little bit. And I feel like people feel like as a leader, you're not allowed to be vulnerable. Like you're always supposed to be the strong person. I'll be honest, I have cried in front of my staff before. I have I've shown anger and frustration in front of my staff, and then I sometimes have to come back around and say, you know that I'm upset about the situation. I'm not upset at people just in this room. Yeah. Or, and just making mm-hmm. sure that you have those, you allow yourself to be vulnerable because people know that, oh, I felt that way before too. They can see that you're real, you're authentic. Yes. And it allows them to also be vulnerable too. They know that you're not the perfect person and that you you allow yourself to say, you yeah, know permission. What? I, I think yeah. I could have, yeah, I could have handled that case a little bit better or, I wish I had approached it this way. And people, I think for me, as when I see leaders that do that, they get my buy-in right away because they tell me, they tell me the things that they did wrong and how they learned from them. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. And and I, I do feel like it's permission to be vulnerable, right? It's hard for us to do that. But once we give ourselves permission to be vulnerable and we share that with the team, it also gives the team permission to be vulnerable. And with vulnerability comes trust. And vice versa. You know, we have to trust the team before we can be vulnerable. So I, I appreciate that. I'm going to throw one more thing in there because you said do you, it. you put all the pieces together by saying the word trust. But that's the other thing the leader should do is even if they don't yet know their staff or, their, or the people that they're leading, they need to be willing to give the gift of trust from the beginning instead of waiting for it to be quote unquote earned, earned or whatever, yeah. trusting them. And, you know, sometimes mistakes happen or if there is a, a performance issue that gets identified at some point, but trust is a very big part of being a leader and being a part of a team. I agree. Yeah. If you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, should your younger self listen to that, what would that be? probably the kind of advice that I'm usually telling to my daughter and my husband is almost always chuckling behind me because he sees the irony yes, in, me, <laughs> in me saying something like this. The big things I'm often saying at home are ask for help. It's okay to ask for help. You can't do yes. everything on your own yes. and you need to ask for help. Like I think I feel like I have to learn and relearn that one. There's must yeah, be that's not a one and done. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a cycle or something I have to go through where I have to relearn forgiving yourself for making a mistake and also realizing that it's okay to ask for help. Yeah. Grace. A lot of grace. So being in shelter medicine and even executive director, I can just imagine the things that you have seen and heard and have yeah been privy to. So tell me about a time where your chin hit the ground and your mouth fell open and your palm hit your forehead and you said, no way, I cannot make this shit up. Tell me about that story. God, I probably got a whole bunch of them. I don't know if I, there's so many like, you can't make this shit up. It's mostly like, it's just crazy cases, 150 plus dogs from a hoarding case, a single hoarding case. 
Wow. Um, completely covered in feces and matted hair where you can't tell which end of the dog is which and they aren't even moving because they're just so shocked from being removed from their household. And then the photos that go with it that are feces covered floors, you can see they're soft. You could just see they're dull looking floors because they're loaded with feces. There's so many stories oh, wow. of boarding cases, cat cases. These pictures tell a thousand words. So yeah, those are the kinds of things where you go, there's no freaking way that this somebody is living in this environment right. and they're a functioning member of society. They actually oh. go into work and they, and you have to wonder, wow. do people not smell this on them? Yeah. How do people not know this is what's going on? Oh, so those are the kinds wild. of things that just, they blow me away, these stories. Some of the stories have been ones where it's animal cruelty, like a, the most of the cruelty cases I've seen are cruelty neglect. That's the most common, okay. I would argue that's the mm -hmm. most common cause of cruelty. It's not usually some story. We often think of like some blunt object, somebody yeah. doing physical, intentional harm. But right, usually right, right, right. It's, ne it's neglect, failure to okay. see, failure to care, those kinds of things. But yeah. there, there was a case where a person picked up their dog, it was the boyfriend, picked up the dog and uh, body slammed it. Great big dog. Oh. It, was, it was like an 80-pound dog. He body right. slammed the dog on the ground. It wasn't the first time he'd done it. But it was down in the hind when, after he was done with it. And oh. they brought it to an emergency hospital. The hospital reported to animal care. I can tell all this because it's all the case is closed. But the woman was the one who, the girlfriend was the one who, once the boyfriend left, shared the information with the emergency doctor who contacted mm -hmm. animal control when mm -hmm. it became our case. The dog ended up doing great. It's a wonderful story. Oh. The neurologist helped it get fixed. It, had a, it did have a disc injury, but it was more of a bruise than a rupture. Mm -hmm. And it still had a little bit of a deficit when it left, but it did end up going back with the woman who insisted she would never go back to him. But I can tell you how many times this woman, or prior <sighs> to this, kept yeah. going back to this guy. Oh, who, you my know, gosh. It was an unhealthy thing. It was. There just, is it a was, special place in hell for those people. That's yeah, all I have yeah, to say. Seriously. And it's, it's really hard to see these Ugh. places where you think, how can that happen? But I, yeah. and I understand there's a dynamic there, an abuse victim right. dynamic, but it just blows me away how they keep it. But I will say the dog. Seeing the physical injury on the dog and the dog's uh, response, I'm hoping made the big, she seemed to feel like it actually. Yeah, kind of hope so. that was an eye-opening, yeah. It was okay, I think, with him him being emotionally, physically abusive to her, but when she saw the, the pet get impacted, uh, um, that was different. But yeah, these things uh, you see where you say, oh yeah. my gosh, how could this ever, but it does, uh, it happens, and it's, yeah. it's horrible. I only share the story because it had a happy ending. The dog was, I fell in yeah. love with this dog. He was such a sweetheart. But, oh, uh, but yeah, great. some of those things are just really, really, but then there's just the other head scratcher stuff, stupid stuff. I'll never forget the client that we told her at was post-ops bay and the dog, cat was in a box. The cat was super spicy, super duper spicy. And I was standing right there as the text said, whatever you do, don't open the box. You're going to go okay. home. You're going to put the box in the bathroom. But like your cat is, she's healthy. She's fine. Mm -hmm. But she's, she's a little ticked off right now. So don't. Yeah. And moments later, someone from my staff was going, so she's out there. She's the lady came in. She says the cat's under her car. Oh, what did she do? She opened the box. Opened the box. Of right. That's exactly box. what you told her not and to I, do. Yeah. So I'm out there and I'm like under her car trying to get this cat, which is behind the wheel. And the woman says, should I back the car out? <gasps> no. Oh, my oh. gosh. Oh, geez. Nope. <laughs> I'm, I'm usually really gentle and kind with people like, oh, just so you know, he's, you know, she's a little grumpy. Don't right. open the box. I tried all the gentle terms about it. And I, I put I got the cat from behind the wheel, put it in the box. And I looked right at her. And I said, whatever you do. 
do not open yeah. this box until Jeez. the cat is inside. The doors are all closed. Don't open. Don't look in there. Right. Don't. Do, the cat is safe in the box. In the car, doors closed. Do not open it again. And I mean, I was just really yeah. harsh with her because oh I was gosh. so upset. Well, you had to be because she didn't listen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So funny. Yeah. Those so are those great. are just a handful of stories. Yeah. But I, yeah, I'm sure there's more that I think I'll think of a, something awesome later on. But... <laughs> <laughs> those are great. Thank you for sharing. Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. So at this point in the show, we're going to go into the rapid fire. Tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. Not getting into vet school on the first try. Tell me about your proudest moment. Succeeding in building a new animal shelter and replacing the one that was 60 some odd years old. Why veterinary medicine? What do you love about our profession? I love that everybody gets the bond that we have with cats and dogs and horses. And I, who doesn't look at a kitten and not smile? Self-care. How do you practice it? How do you decompress? Going for walks, doing something creative, drawing, photography, and meeting up with friends. How do you balance work and life? And do you experience any work guilt in that balance? Uh, yeah, lots of guilt for sure. So it's just a little bit of seesawing back and forth between the two roles. What keeps you up at night or things that stress you out over in your role, your business, your life? Letting people down. And what gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? I mean, I love my job, but usually what gets me up in the morning is the fact that I know I have things to do. And I'm all, before I wake up, I've already got a list in my head. What color best describes you and why? Maybe orange. And if you could be any animal, what would it be and why? It'd have to be a cat. I'm a crazy cat lady, and I feel like cats are so, there are things that they do so well, and then there are things that are just complete comedy. So I feel like I'm a mix of that. Awesome. Well, that was great. Thank Dr. you. Hawkins, thank this you for coming fantastic. on. Awesome. Thank you Super for coming fun. on. Thank yeah, you so fun. much. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast and be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. 
The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.